0: This, morning. Uh, this is a, a main part of our service because we believe that this is how God speaks to us. And we need to hear his word. Uh, it's good to, to hear what, what he has to say. He has uh, words that point out to us our, our failures and inadequacies, but he also has words then that point out to us his grace and mercy that ultimately he has given us in Jesus. And so... Before we, we turn to uh, his word, let's first pray quickly for, for the blessing of the spirit to be upon us in this time. Lord God, we need to hear your word. Uh, confront us, challenge us, point out the ways that we have been wrong, but do so so that then the balm of the gospel might be. morning, we, uh, because we have just finished up a series on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we're now gonna, going to begin a mini-series for the next three weeks that I'm calling, Come to the Table. And the Bible speaks to us in ways that we can understand. And one of the ways that we can understand, it's one of the great universals, is food. It plays a central part in our lives, doesn't it? Food sustains us. Food is brought out for, at times of joy. Food provides a place for fellowship and for sharing. I mean, it's really no wonder then that God uses the theme of food all throughout the Bible. And so for the next three weeks, we're going to look at a few passages that either center on the theme of food or where it plays a prominent role. And so today we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 25. Uh, You can either find the the text printed in your your worship guide. Uh, If you want to open up your, your Bible, Isaiah 25. At the whole chapter of verses 1 through 12. And let's pay attention to hearing what God's word has to say for us now. O oh Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you, I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city. Foreigners' palace is a city no more, it will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you, cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners, as heat by the shade of the cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up. spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim but the lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands and the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down lay low and cast to the ground to the dust amen but we don't need the bible to tell us that the history of the world is one see it on large scales. The news pages are filled with, with human suffering. In fact, right, da- right before I went to sit down on Thursday to, to begin to actually write out this sermon, to put words to paper is when I read about the apartment building that had collapsed in Miami. Things, like, terrible things happen in the world, things that cause us to grieve. But just as poignantly, we experience it individually in our own lives, too. Fail and to slowly decline. Mental illness and the resulting anguish that caused or which we suffer from. Disease strikes. Diagnoses and tests come back positive. Abuse. Neglect. Unhappy or unfulfilled relationships. Disappointment. Betrayals. We don't need to keep it going on and on with these things. It's clear that there's something dreadfully wrong in this world. If there wasn't, we wouldn't question why these things happen, nor would we fight against it. We don't need the Bible to show us the grief that fills the world, but the Bible, though, does tell us more about the problem and the origin of this grief. And it refers to it as a curse, as a shroud of darkness, which has fallen upon the world from which no one and nothing is exempt. And so what do we do with that? You can either be accepting of it all, and this is just how things are, I guess, or you can refuse to admit that things are okay, that this isn't how things are supposed to be. And that second response is in line with what the Bible says. It pushes back. It rebels. But it gives a particular vision of what that rebellion and that refusal looks like, which differs drastically from how humanity, apart from God, goes about it. And so we're going to see from this passage, first of all, here the failure of human confidence to do so. Uh, the human response is to fight back, to push back against all the troubles and the difficulties which plague us collectively. And there's there's nothing which we can't accomplish if we put our if we if our pre- we, there's nothing we can't accomplish, including saying that phrase. Um, but if we if we put our minds to it, right? Medicine pushes forward against disease. We virtually eradicated a number of diseases, which have brought endless grief and tragedy to individuals, even just a generation ago. Or the way that humans organize and govern themselves collectively has contributed to pulling ourselves out from being warring factions and brought us into order and to working with and for one another. We understand biology and ecology and new ways to go about agriculture here ...that make it more sustainable and more efficient. And so the Western world really has a certain swagger about it. There's a self-confidence that no matter what the problem is that is threatening us, we can conquer it if we just put our minds to it. And Isaiah 25 addresses this mindset. And it shows us that humanity really isn't any different today than it was 2,500 years ago when this was given. And he shows us two icons of this self-confidence and of how it manifests itself. And the first is the city. You see the imagery of a city, particularly in verses two two and five, the city of a strong and a mighty people. Because cities are where we see our collective strength put together. In this time here, the city was a place where you had safety. People would band together because your odds of survival by yourself and being alone were slim And they would get together and form cities where everyone would work together for protection and work for the common good. And arguably, then, the city represents humanity's best collective way for human advancement, then, as individuals are brought together and they self-organize, then, for the common good. And the modern city still has this focal point for, for human achievement. Cities are the hubs where people come together and where they share ideas and where they attempt advance human good, at least human good according to whatever vision they take. But the second icon that we see here of self-confidence is human skill, which is noted in verse 11. If the city is strength, then this is ingenuity. We're clever people and God has gifted humanity with great amazing skills the way that some the ways that some people think blow us away. The technical skills or the organizational or leadership abilities of others is a, it's amazing. And so we can't just overpower some of our problems or rely on strength. Sometimes it relies on how we address a problem. It requires craft or an alternate way of looking at it. But both the city and skill here that we have, strength and ingenuity, both of them are human ways that we fight against the curse's power and try Isaiah, the Lord exposes them as being failing endeavors to see just how weak and powerless they really are. The city will be demolished and toppled. Even the cities of the strongest peoples will dissipate like the heat of the sun when the clouds covered over, as verse 5 says. Human skill and ingenuity, and then all the pride that puffs itself up with it personified by the, the nation of moab in verses 10 and 11 as a skillful people and this skillful people will be pulled down from their pride to what isaiah says is a dunghill or rather a better way of understanding it would be a cesspool of excrement now you would imagine that would humble anyone even the proudest and that that would cause them to turn their eyes upward in recognition of the lord's might but that's not what they do. They still continue to rely upon their own skill. They spread their hands out in an attempt to swim and stay afloat in this pool of filth. And, this, and it's a disgusting picture here, but it gets across th- th- this whole idea. The very thing which should have happened, which is for them to look upward in humility, gives way to going, trying to go it alone in pride. And it results in this gross picture. I mean, how can you be proud when you're so in bodily waste. Now, certainly there are very real goods in human accomplishments. Medicine brings relief to, hu- to human ailments. Science provides advancements of all type for the betterment of life. Organization and government give structure to us and they afford protection so that we're not all just living in chaos. They're good. And we ought to recognize them as good. But there's a big difference Seeing them as good and then trusting in them as our saviors. Because all of those will only bring temporary relief then from the curse. But they can only mitigate the causes of human grief to a degree. They are all ultimately medicines which only treat the symptoms, but cannot fix the underlying cause or the disease. Suffering still exists in this world, doesn't it? We haven't done anything to actually really any true alleviation we still have new problems that are arising that we have to deal with and there's still the problem of death for everyone that needs to be taken care of we really are weak and as God exposes them both the city and and strength and and our own ingenuity as God exposes those to see how weak we are then he also exposes us he shows us how weak we are we are powerless here as we see to reverse the narrative of grief and to overturn the shroud of darkness that covers all things. We cannot conquer that which is wrong with us, either collectively as a whole or the own individual manifestations of our own stories. But still, we're to push back against just simply being passive to suffering. We're not to accept it in a stoic way, but to acknowledge that there is something that is terribly wrong in the of looking foolish and trying to cling to whatever vestiges of human pride that we have left isaiah points us to an alternative way of life and this way is much different because he doesn't point us to strength he doesn't point us to our skill he points us instead to a table that's laid out for us he points us to a feast that is set out by the lord our second point here that we're going to see is is the feast of coming joy. This alternative vision that we have is not a city. It's not what humanity does. But it's rather of what God does. He provides a victory feast for his people to enjoy. It's the Lord who will claim victory over the curse. And he will rewrite the script of human history to bring resolution to grief and darkness. Verse 4 the stronghold of the poor, of the needy, of those in distress. He comes to the aid of those who recognize that they are weak and powerless in this world, and he accomplishes what even the best human strength and skill could never do. Verses 7 through 8 are the crux here. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death for God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken the Lord comes as the defeater of the curse the shroud of darkness which has covered the world will be torn away by God he comes even as the conqueror of death itself the problem which has plagued us all and which we will never find ourselves a way to cure and he also comes intimately though here, as the comforter of those who have been trampled by grief. It's one thing to bring relief, but it's another thing entirely to soothe and to wipe away the tears. So this is the deep tenderness of God. God is not just only the impassive, he's not the impassive liberator, but he frees his people and then he wipes away their tears. And as the victor then, he sets out a feasts and tables full of food just aren't complete if you're alone. Celebrations and feasts beg for others to join in. And so he sets it out for his people whom he's rescued. You have to imagine that if he prepares a feast, it's going to be good. Tables and tables set out with the richest foods that could be had. Goblets lining the tables just begging to be filled with endless barrels of the finest wines This is a celebration feast that is worthy of the Lord God. And he shares this victory celebration with his people. Even though they had nothing to contribute to this, the liberator invites his freed people to join him in feasting at his own victory table. And yet there's something peculiar, very peculiar with this vision. God's people liberated from the curse are eating and drinking and they're laughing at his table. And in, a, in one sense, God is already. He. he has swallowed up the very curse which held the world under bondage and suffering. They are swallowing down the richest food that he has provided. And he looks on and says, but I have swallowed the curse for you. He has ingested death forever. He has taken it in, in himself to free his people from it. See, that's how his rescue plan would work. That Jesus, the Son of God, would himself swallow up and take within him the very curse of the world. He would take death within himself on the cross then to break its power from his people. His death and taking the curse and the subsequent resurrection then, overall, as he claimed victory, would be of the world it would change the course of history from that point on this is the unseen reality of the world that jesus christ is the victor over all things that he has single-handedly turned the course of the world from continuing along its spiral of death and suffering and he has now pulled it towards a trajectory of life and of glory so that there is now real hope amid suffering there is comfort to be had but not because of our own strength not because of human ingenuity but because Jesus has suffered and he has risen again in our place because of the victory of Jesus to overturn the curse and human grief and friends we are free then to celebrate just as we see here the Christian life is one that should be lived with real celebration and joy Because we get to sit back and we get to revel in his victory. We get to share in his victory meal that he has set out for us. The veil or the covering that we see from verse 7 is like a mourner's veil. When someone was in mourning, they would cover themselves with this covering here, this this, this veil to symbolize their grief. But we see in verse 7, the Lord has taken it away. The time for mourning is over. Grief doesn't have the final say the trajectory of the world has been radically changed from suffering and death to now comfort and life. Friends, is this your approach to the Christian life? The believer ought to be the most joyful of all. We ought to celebrate the most. We ought to have the best parties. We ought to enjoy celebrating with one another. Why? Because Jesus has swallowed up death and torn the mourner's veil from the world. That is every reason for us to celebrate. I mean, really, honestly, we celebrate for plenty of reasons that are a whole lot less than that. And whenever we do celebrate, they are like our victory cries against the darkness. They testify to the triumph of Jesus Christ over all things. Because we celebrate with a distinct character and and identity. Celebrations are done for, for some sort of reason, aren't they? Either for some history, or a story, or whatever it is that gives purpose to us when we gather and we feast. We get together for purposes. And admittedly, some of those purposes are better than others. But God's people get to celebrate because of the great story of life and of comfort that is freely given to us by Jesus and God. Our cheers, then, are shouts of of his victory for us we clink our glasses together we toast his strength over our weakness. Every laugh, every plate of food bears testimony to the Lord's work. That Christ has swallowed up death forever and he is removing the veil of shadow from the world. How many of us live as if the death and resurrection and victory of Jesus isn't true? Is the reality of Christ made evident in this way? Gather together, eat well, partake in all the festivities, because as we do, we bear witness to the reality of Jesus' kingdom, having broken into the world and giving hope to an otherwise hopeless situation. But we also see that this isn't just a feast of coming joy, but this is also now, point three, a feast of present promise. The call for us then is from this passage here is to wait for that day of a trust and a confidence in in the lord that this is his victory feast that this is accomplished by his hand and that requires us then to trust and to wait for what he will do verse 9 behold this is our god we have waited for him that he might save us this is the lord we have waited for him but this seems all such like a a far-off ideal waiting is hard enough anyways let alone Sometimes we may have trouble believing that rescue or the end will indeed come. The curse has a very real bite to it. Let's not downplay its existence. There is an honesty that we can have and that we ought to have about the curse's reality upon us. That it is defeated, but it's still a part of the world in which you and I live right now. Night is still upon us, and we don't know when that dawn will the more difficult it is to not then cast glances upon objects of false hope or to slowly buy into narratives that tell us that relief and overcoming are found in different ways. And even if we do continue to believe it, there are moments when we need God's promise made to us in a more concrete way to make it tangible for us to hold on to when the most real thing that it seems that we experience is darkness. That was true for this people Israel whom Isaiah was speaking to. It seemed as if God had abandoned them as their enemies pressed it upon them and the darkness pressed in the heart. And it was made all the worse here because they, they were supposed to be the people of God. They were supposed to be a people of promise, and this is what happened to them. Now just by looking at the situation alone, it seemed as if they had been abandoned by the Lord their feeling of abandonment they were left in either in absolute despair or they tried other means to dig themselves out god tells them to put both of these notions aside and instead to trust in his promise and to trust in his character to lift them out from their darkness because god hadn't abandoned them they didn't need to trust in anything else which would inevitably fail them they didn't need to embrace sorrow as if there was no other reality points them to this fact by, again, pointing them to a feast. When God makes covenants or promises throughout the Bible, he always seals his promise with some sort of tangible expression, something that can be pointed to as a sign of his promise and of his never-ending commitment. And he does that because he knows our own human weaknesses. He knows that we need something, at times, very concrete for us to, to focus our eyes back on him. It's a way that he demonstrates how much we really do need to live in trust and reliance upon his promises rather than ourselves, or rather than, or, or not to give into total despair and sorrow in the shadows of our experience. And one of those ways that we see his covenant sealed is by a meal, by a feast. earlier in the Old Testament, in the life of, of Israel, here in Exodus 24 is this climactic moment here as as the Lord takes Israel to be his people. He has brought them out of, of bondage and slavery in Egypt. He's brought them now into freedom, and he's brought them to Mount Sinai. He's making his covenant with them, saying that I will be your God, and you will be my people. And to seal his covenant, he invites Moses and the elders of Israel up onto the mountain, Mount Sinai, to eat and God's covenant then was sealed with them by the sign of a meal. And it says then also that they beheld the Lord as they met with him there. And here in Isaiah, as he speaks with a peop- to a people who are in deep sorrow, and they're questioning whether or not God's promises are true for them, they were, are reminded yet again of a, of a meal, of a feast set out by God upon a mountain. And that meal here is a sign of his covenant. They are not abandoned, nor will they ever be abandoned. Because in the darkness, his commitment will hold true. He will indeed deliver them from darkness, and he is not gone. They will see him, and they will behold his presence. And this has the utmost significance for you and me, because he continues to show us his steadfast covenant commitment as we await the day of his. Just as he did through a meal to Israel, so also does he do to a meal to us, his continuing people. He does so through a table that he sets out for us, with bread and wine. See, so the meal that we come back to each week, the Lord's table is one of promise and of covenant. It's a sign of promises made and kept. It's a seal of promises that will continue The Lord's table here is the anticipation of the victory feast that we see here in Isaiah. Because the victory was accomplished by the work of Jesus. His death was where he took the curse of sin, which lies heavy upon us, and has freed us from its grip. We see his body and blood given for us here in the bread and the cup. And as Jesus gave that meal then to his disciples and also to us, it was a way... To remember just how his victory would come. And that we've seen already the most pivotal m- moment of how God enacted then, that, that promise to rescue. But the thing is, it doesn't just stop there. We aren't just looking back. The meal that he gave us is also to point us in also to the greater day of feasting when he comes with final victory. And when he comes to bring renewal of all things. When the curse is finally removed and the mourner's veil is poured away when we see the vision here in Isaiah chapter 25 come to fruition, when that curse is, is taken away here, when we come to the table then, Jesus is showing us that his promise to return and to restore continues the whole truth. to hold true. Looking in faith to a day that we really have no context for can seem so conceptual for us, especially when everything that we encounter with our senses Reminds us of the ruined state of things. But Jesus is so kind to us. And he wants you to continue to look to him in faith. That he wouldn't just merely give us his promises verbally. He also gives us his promises in a tangible, more concrete way that we can take in. We hold the bread. We taste the cup. We see his body and blood. We smell it. Supplements then to hearing his promise to come again, and it all announces to us that the renewal and the victory feast of the Lord is just as real as the bread and the wine which we taste and touch. See, in a way, it's like an appetizer for the great feast to come. You order an appetizer at a restaurant, and as it comes to the table, it's a sign of greater things to come—that entree is coming. And at the Lord's table, we are beginning to eat and enjoy that feast but the real feasting and the real celebration is on the way and as Israel beheld God then through the covenant meal that was given to them so also do we in a way it's his seal to us that we will see him someday that we will behold the Lord Jesus as we actually sit down at a table with him as we get partaken that feast with him and in a way also Someday, it will be physical, and we look forward to that, but until then, he's with us by his spirit. And so this meal, then, that we're going to partake in in just a couple minutes shows you that you are not abandoned. He shares fellowship with you, even in your darkened and your sorrowed circumstances. See, when you partake of the elements, when when you have those, he wants you, then, to lift your eyes and to lift your heart up to him in faith and to be reminded again of his promise to you and so as you come and you eat by faith he reminds you that he will always be with you that he will never leave you that he has indeed conquered the world and he wants you to remember that so that you will again and again and again look up to him in hope each day of our lives reminds us that there is a dark veil which God, in the death and resurrection of his Son, has given us hope by showing us a new and coming reality of life. He has taken hold of the corner of the veil and he has lifted it up so that we may behold the light of his glory shining in the corner. And every time his promises are spoken, every time his lifts up that corner yet again to show us that though the curse's sorrow is true, so also is the curse's defeat. One day, God will not just lift up a corner of that veil, but he will tear it off from the world with finality. And on that day, his people will celebrate and feast and give him thanks with all joy. So friends, let's come to his table that is set before us and celebrate again. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that amidst our lives in the darkness, there is a reality that is just as true, but one that is. That we see here will be revealed And Lord help us then to long for that feast To have that picture be first and foremost in our minds Help us to celebrate and to take joy And Lord would that be evident among us Would that even be evident among us in our normal everyday lives But Lord would that same joy and celebration and laughter And lightheartedness also be present as we come and we celebrate check our